0: Hey friends, it's Mark James. Today is Wednesday the 24th of January and the time as I begin this recording is 4.42pm. I've intended to start this recording about 10 times today and I've either been put off or struggled to get on with it or whatever for reasons I'll explain in a second. This is the strongest I've heard my voice since Sunday afternoon. I haven't had a bad throat I haven't had a headache, haven't had a migraine or a lie down in bed injury. Nope, I've had food poisoning. Oh my God have I had food poisoning. Jesus, it's been genuinely unthinkably brutal. Like so terrifically bad that I've honestly barely been able to move, talk, even breathe. It's just been horrendous. I've vomited 60 times in total roughly 60, might have been give or take, a chuck or two. It's been really, really rough. And I've been trying to build up my energy and save it for this recording. And then Joshua was coming home before. And so I was going to record while he was coming home. And then he was texting me about, you know, should I get the bus or should I walk? And then he told me he was going to get the bus. And then I told him to get a meal deal from the shop on the way home. Um, and then all these other things. And then suddenly he got the meal deal. But he was still at school because he went to the shop at school instead of going to the one at home. So he still wasn't on the bus. Bus and then the next bus was full and then he waited till the third bus and he didn't get home until half four even though he finished school at 10 past three because he's a moron. He should have just got the bus to home and then gone to the shop that was next to home but instead he went to the shop that was next to school which is such a ridiculous, he's just, you know, he's 12. He's 12, he can't plan effectively. This is what I've learned. I went to the shop earlier to get something to drink, some Pepsi Max. I already feel out of breath and just like, you know, a bit dazed from this tiny bit of recording. We're currently two minutes in, but God, did I have food poisoning. Essentially, we went, we had a weekend in London, kind of a bit of a surprise weekend, but I think I told you that I knew it was coming. But when I say surprise, I mean, it wasn't long planned. Sarah was down in London working. She was actually in East Croydon, um working doing a like a there's an install of a new store for the bigger company that she works for and they needed some um What's the word that I'm looking for? Like assistance, support. They needed some support. And so she went down there to work in that store and kind of give some support and guidance and help and help some, you know, train a few people and teach them some things and whatnot. And when she got there, it turned out the hotel room they'd given her had a double bed and a single bed in it. So there was enough room for me and Joshua. So Friday when he finished school, we drove down there and we had a nice little weekend in London. For me and Joshua, it was fantastic, of course, because it was like a free holiday that we didn't expect. So we drove down there, and then while Sarah worked on the Saturday, Joshua and I went out into London, and we did loads of super fun stuff. We took all of Sarah's advice, and we took the train to uh, London Bridge which is both an overground and an underground station. But we took the train to London Bridge and we got off and went into Borough Market, which Sarah had recommended. Borough Market is a bit like a smaller version of Camden Market or a bit like The Grove in LA, the food market there. Basically just an open air. I say open air. It is open air, but it's under... Bridges and stuff, you know, it's semi-covered, food market, but very old London, very sort of 1920s London. It's all brickwork, it's all cobbled street, it's all old, you know, uh, carts and stuff. Except now, instead of uh, greasy, uh, you know, dirt-covered faces of um, older men selling joints of meat, it's hipsters selling Rubens and um, freshly squeezed lemonade. (laughs) (laughs) ow, (laughs) I can't laugh properly, because when I, um, oh, this might be a bad idea, because I do make myself laugh quite a lot, but, um, when I laugh, my stomach muscles, especially across the top, really, really hurt from vomiting so much on Sunday night, Monday morning, so, Anyway, it's full of hipsters now, all selling their wares, you know, and they're organically uh, grown, organically flown, I suppose, when you're talking about bees, but organic honey. Organically flown honey instead of organically grown honey, that's what they should say. And uh, truffles. There There were loads of people giving out samples, right? And so Josh was going along, picking up samples. And I swear, he picks up a bit of cheese and he eats it. Then he goes to the next stand and he picks up a tiny square of honey that's been, you know, segmented for you to try the shop's honey, and he picks it up and he eats it. Then he rolls over to the next stand. And if I hadn't a karate chopped him on the forearm, he would have picked up and eaten a hundred and thirty-four pound piece of truffle. <laughs> there was a stall selling truffle. And we're talking about a piece that's only the size of I mean, we're we're talking no bigger because it was it was um, misshapen, of course. You know if you held, and I have held these quite a bit this week, you know if you held some dice in your hand, um, to, but really misshapen ones, like a 20-sided dice, an 8-sided dice, a 5-sided dice, and a 4-sided dice. You know if you held all four of them in your hand, the shape that would make and the size of it, that's the size of this bit of truffle. But it was valued at £134, right? pounds in value money not weight of course those would be some big dice and joshua went to pick it up and i thought if he gets his hand on that i know he's gonna eat it he thinks it's a sample so i literally have to karate chop and say whatever you do don't pick that up that's an example of the truffle they sell and then there's another jar filled with truffle and you lift the lid and you put your nose in and you can smell it and god did it smell amazing but um Yes, we had loads of samples, but we also split a Reuben between us, which is kind of a traditional salt beef on rye sandwich with pickle and sauerkraut and uh, cheese, all sorts of other things. Fantastic sandwich. We split one of those between us, cut in half, of course, half each. We had some fresh lemonade. We tried, I mean, we tried all sorts of stuff. We bought a rainbow bagel, which turned out not to be that nice. We had oysters. This store had... Two different types of oysters. We got two oysters each and had them fresh, which is a hell of a breakfast, by the way. But uh, it was all good. We just tried all sorts of stuff. Then we got the... uh, We walked across London Bridge and we got the underground from... Monument to Charing Cross, which is a good, it's a decent walk. You're better off getting the tube. So we got the tube and we came out of Charing Cross and walked straight up through Trafalgar Square and up to the National Gallery. And as soon as we got in the National Gallery, we asked where the stuff we wanted to see was. We basically wanted to see Van Gogh's Sunflowers, which I've never seen in real life before. Very reminiscent of the Chicago trip. Joshua has seen some amazing stuff in his life. He liked seeing that. He liked... Um, seeing the Leonardo da Vinci. There was like a sketch, like a chalk drawing, and um, it had quite a strange name. I can't remember what it's called now. It's very good, though, but it's in the National if you want to Google it and find out what I'm on about. It had to be kept in low light so as not to ruin the art. You know, it has to be displayed under low light. So we saw that. It was very good. And you know what? I'm going to have to Google because I feel like I can't leave you with uh, unseen information National Gallery, Leonardo da Vinci, low-light sketch. It'll come up straight away. The Burlington House Cartoon. The Burlington House Cartoon. And it's basically a sketch of a sort of group of uh, two women and two children. And um, it's an amazing thing, but Leonardo da Vinci sketched it, so... Go and Google it, the Burlington House cartoon. Make sure you click to see the full-size picture of it. You don't get any sense of this when you look at things online, but it's basically life-size. You know, it's at least six feet tall, this, this sketch. So it's not a it's not on a small notepad or anything. Comparative, of course, to the Mona Lisa, which is always described as shockingly small and way smaller than you expect it to be. But it's called the Burlington House cartoon. So we saw that. The thing that Joshua really liked was this painting by George Stubbs of a horse. It's a life size horse. Can't remember what that's called either. But anyway, George Stubbs horse. It's called out like whispering something. Is it called whispering something? Oh, fuck me. I'm Googling that as well now. I hate myself. George Stubbs horse. You don't care what it's called, do you? Whistle jacket, not whispering something. So there was a painting of this horse, but it's a full-size painting. And Joshua absolutely loved that. And it made me feel literally less than... I felt nothing. Less than nothing. Nothing at all. I got no joy or sense of inspiring feelings or anything at all from looking at this painting But Joshua loved it and then I felt something because I really enjoyed that I didn't like it and Joshua did like it. And there's nothing greater, I think, as a parent than when your children tell you something that you didn't already know, which obviously takes years to happen. It really does. It takes years to happen. As Louis C.K. jokes about in one of his specials when he says, my daughter's five and if I'd missed every single thing she'd ever said, it would have made no real difference to anything. You know, nothing in the world would have changed. Of course, you want to hear what your children have got to say, but it wouldn't actually change anything. Children, they, do, they only know what you know, basically. And they only like what you've given them to like or taught them to like. And so... I suppose children are a bit of an expression of free will in some senses and whether will is truly free because you can choose between your options, but you can't choose your options. So you think that your will is free because in the morning you choose to get the bus or the train, but you can't also choose to add a Bugatti into that scenario or a hovercraft, or, you know, you get, you get to choose between the options that are available to you. So will is free in a limited sense. And children are the same. Children get to choose. They think they have free will because you say, do you want pizza or do you want chips for dinner? If you're a shocking parent, of course, what you really say is, do you want risotto or salad for dinner? (laughs) How? But, um, You know, you you give them those two choices and they believe they have free will because they choose. But they didn't get to choose their options. You don't get to choose your choices. I mean, we actually use that, don't we, as a parenting technique. Do you want to go to bed now or do you want to stay up for five extra minutes and go to bed then? I'll stay up for five extra minutes. Okay, fine. And you give them that choice five minutes before bedtime so that they go to bed on time without any fuss. So they feel like they made a choice. But actually, they didn't get to choose their choices. And their choices were specifically manipulated in order to control them. And that's what society does to us as adults. But we don't recognise it as readily as we do it when we do it to our own children. But anyway, so it's very exciting when your child teaches you something that you didn't know already. I find that a very fulfilling thing. It happened in the National Gallery. We saw a picture through a doorway and Joshua said, let's go and look at this. And there was a giant, I mean 40 feet across painting and I didn't know what it was I could see that it was a man holding a severed head which you know I guessed if I'd really thought about it I could have guessed who it was but Joshua spotted it through a doorway a mile away and instantly it it hit a chord with him and he said we need to go and look at this and we went in and we looked at it and he said that is Perseus holding the severed head of Medusa and he went to claim his prize for killing Medusa and the guy he was doing it for, whose name I've forgotten, I'm not googling that, fuck yeah, if you don't know, you'll never know and if you want to know, google it or ask Joshua. Uh, The guy who he did it for was uh, decided to betray him and have all of his soldiers kill him. So Perseus pulled the severed head of Medusa out of a bag, which nobody knew he had with him. And it turned all of the guy's soldiers to stone. And apparently before he did it, he said, anyone who's not with me, close your eyes now. And then he pulled the severed head out and boom, he won. And Joshua knew that story because he loves Greek myths and he's read a ton of books about it. And I haven't and I don't. So I learned something from him that I didn't know already. It was very fulfilling. I enjoyed it a lot. And that's one of the best things. So learning something that you didn't know already from your child. But also your child cultivating different interests to you but inside of things that you deem as having worth to you. Because when he tells me that he loves certain games and all that sort of stuff, I don't necessarily attach any value to that because I don't especially like or care about games. Obviously, I play Call of Duty sometimes, but apart from that, I'm not a big game person or anything. But when he, I do love art though. So when he tells me that he loves a bit of art that makes me feel nothing, I wonder what has happened inside of his brain or what influence he has from other places in his life that's made him enjoy that artwork. And it shows me that my child is a multifaceted individual with hopes and dreams and likes and dislikes and loves and passions and things that I not only don't instantly connect with, but don't even understand and that I think is fulfilling too because you can go a lot of different ways. You can try and understand them, you can support them without understanding or you can just marvel at them and I think it's a good thing. So I enjoyed that trip to the National Gallery. We saw a few great things and then we got out of there because I learned in the Chicago Institute of Art that I love art but I have a limited patience for being surrounded by and wading through the kind of art that I don't like. I I checked to see if they had any modern art in the National before we left and they didn't. So as soon as we'd seen the famous stuff, I thought it's time to bail because I want to be able to say that I've seen well-known artworks. I want to be able to discover new artworks within genres that I enjoy, but I don't necessarily want to look at loads of French Impressionism or, you know, Bavarian stick drawings or whatever that are from the fourteen hundreds or two hundred a d there's just like I don't know why I chose Bavarian stick drawings there they're just three words that came to my mind, but they might not they might not even be a thing right I'm googling that <laughs> bavarian stick draw if the, if these are amazing by the way, Bavarian stick drawings okay um nothing has come up inherently. But Bavarian folk art has come up, and there are no Bavarian stick drawings. Well, at least I haven't written off an entire genre of art by just being, you know, a bit of a dick about it. It doesn't exist. So there you go. Um, But you don't want to wade through stuff that you don't necessarily enjoy. So... If there'd have been modern art, I'd have been all over that. I love modern art. I really do enjoy it. I find it endlessly interesting because it's so weird and some of it is so shit that it makes you annoyed and some of it is so brilliant that it makes you laugh. And I just think I really love modern art but and I like classics and I like famous stuff, but, you know, that's that's where I'm at. So anyway... We, uh, we had our day out in London. We also went for some other food afterwards. And we went back to the train to go and meet Sarah. And our plan was to go out to Camden together. But once we got back to the hotel, Sarah had been at work all day. Josh and I had been traipsing around London all day. To be honest, we were all a little bit... Um, we're all a little bit tired. So we ended up going out and having a walk and exploring East Croydon. And then we went to Wendy's and we got... Joshua had never had Wendy's before and I like it. Sarah, it turns out, doesn't like it. But we got Wendy's takeout and we took it back to the hotel and we just watched TV in the hotel. And I bought a HDMI cable from a phone shop and plugged my MacBook into the television that was in the room so that we could watch Netflix on the TV in the hotel, which is a tip I'm absolutely taken forward from now on. I don't know why I haven't done it more often. I always have my MacBook with me and I end up watching stuff on the MacBook, but you can totally watch it on a bigger TV if you just take the HDMI cable with you. I don't know why I haven't done it more often. Silly really, but I did that and uh, I've since actually used that to improve my office. I bought a 24-inch monitor from Amazon and I've put it up in between the lights, the uh, forward-facing studio lights that I perform in front of in the office Um, to use as a monitor, which is obviously much, much bigger than the MacBook screen. And it's fantastic. It works so good. I actually liked it so much, but thought the screen was a bit small. And because it's only a monitor with no speakers or anything like that, a 24-inch one was only £87. Anyway, I go back on Amazon today. They're only having a sale. The... 27 inch monitor the 20 I got the 24 inch the 27 inch monitor was only 96 pound so for a further 9 pounds I could upgrade the television screen the monitor by quite some distance to be fair the difference between 24 inch and 27 inch because it's obviously measured across when it comes to a screen is quite a bit so I've bought the 27 inch monitor And I've started the returns process for the 24-inch monitor. I just sent Sarah the label and asked her to print it for me and take it home. And then tomorrow, I'll drop it off at the shop at the end of the street. And uh, the new one will arrive, obviously, tomorrow. And the old one will be shipped back. And I'll get the refund in a couple of days. So... um, All's good. But I set up the whole thing. I haven't put it on the wall though. It's quite good. I bought an arm that clamps to the back of the desk, you know, like a sort of vice arm with a long bar. And then that bar has another bar that comes off it. So the screen is movable and adjustable. It means I can tilt it down so I can see it perfectly when I'm sitting at the desk and I can also uh, move it around. And so I had a shelf behind it on the wall. And I didn't have to take it down. It's now just positioned in front of the shelf and I can swing the TV quickly out of the way to gain access to the shelf when I want to get stuff off it. So I'm keeping other camera equipment and stuff on there. Anyway, it's fantastic. I'm really pleased with the setup. It's worked out really nicely and uh, I like it a lot. And I'm pleased that I've upgraded. I had a bit of a hum and har about it today. Was it worth it? But the more I look at it, I just think the screen really, if it was... Bigger would be even better, and it would be way bigger than the MacBook screen, and so it was worth the extra nine quid soon as it was cheap in the first place, so I did that, but anyway, we did that in the hotel and we watched actually we watched Friends because i've been in the office quite a bit recently working on some new projects, um, which i 'll start to tell you all about soon, in fact, i 'll tell you about one right now, but um Because I've been in there quite a bit, I needed something to just have on in the background. Friends felt like a fairly good option. So I've just had Friends on from episode one and now I'm up to series three. But we watched five or six episodes in the hotel too before we all ended up falling asleep. But definitely plugging the MacBook into the TV is a win. Then the next day, Sarah had switched her days off so we could all go to Brighton together. And we we weren't going to go at one point. Then we changed our minds and went. And we'd looked up some places to eat. And I saw this place to eat. And I'm not going to mention them by name for fear of potentially libeling them because I am maybe going to bring a case about this. And I've contacted them already to speak to them and deal with it. But, um, I... Oh, Sarah's just messaged me. Um... Sorry. So anyway, but I um she messaged me saying she got the boy sushi for lunch, but he's already got himself a meal deal. Funny. Anyway, so I have contacted them about potentially dealing with it and you know sorting out some things because obviously they gave me quite bad food poisons. So I'm not going to name them, but we ate from this place and It was, the food was great, by the way. It was very tasty and it was very nice and it looked like it was going to be brilliant, but there was clearly something wrong with it because we didn't eat anywhere else that day until late at night when I was watching Call of Duty. I ate two Vietnamese sandwiches, two banh mi Vietnamese sandwiches. And just before I started to eat them, Joshua said he felt really sick. And then he went to the toilet and he vomited and I thought, oh, poor kid, he's got something, but he's really spewing. He spewed like 10... 12 times uh, across a couple of hours i ate my sandwiches felt like i was okay then i finished playing call of duty and at like 1am uh went to bed and then i was in bed for about 10 minutes and i woke up thinking oh i've got a bad stomach cramp and then i needed to be sick and i went to the toilet and i vomited about six or seven times sorry if you're a bit uh screamish squeamish um screamish Because then I went back to bed, woke up again 10 minutes later after almost getting back to sleep, spewed again. And then between then and sort of 4.30am, I spewed about 40 times. My back was hurting so much and my stomach from being sick that I had to get in the bath. And of course, mine was made much worse by the fact that I'd eaten other stuff since I'd eaten the bad thing. So whereas Joshua had just spewed out the bad thing, I was spewing out everything else as well. So... I got in the bath and then I just kept getting out of the bath to be sick and then getting back in the bath because my stomach and back were killing. And that lasted till about 7am. Then I got out of the bath and got a shower. And then I went upstairs and got in bed with a hot water bottle. And then I managed to sleep until about 10 o'clock. And that kind of set me off for a couple of days really. And I've just been bad ever since. This is the best I've felt in a couple of days, but it's still, it's still not good. I feel really quite rough. It's bad times here. (laughs) <laughs> very bad times. So uh, doing the thing. Uh, hold on, I'm just going to message Sarah. Just doing the pod. I'm a bit late doing this podcast, obviously, so I'm just asking Sarah if there's any chance she can get dropped off at home rather than me coming to get her because uh, obviously I'm a bit delayed with this and I'm worried if I don't finish this now... I might not get it done, but Sarah and I are doing a thing tonight. We're going to an art class to do some painting, which actually I'm really excited about. She just asked me the other day, like, do you want to go to this thing? And I think she asked me because she didn't want me to moan that she'd booked it by herself and I would have wanted to go. But to be fair, her instincts were dead right because I did want to go. As soon as she told me about it, I thought this sounds really fun. And I've never been that good at sort of painting or drawing, but I feel like if I'm given the materials and someone is showing me what to do, I'm not bad at following instructions. So I might be okay at art. I certainly can design stuff and all that. I'm just not very good at, um, not very good at, draw, you know, drawing. Um, oh, hold on. She's saying she'll get the bus. I don't want her to get the bus. I don't like her getting the bus. It's too cold. And she's a princess. She can't be getting the bus. Um, anyway, So, that was London. Drove home from Brighton. I love Brighton, by the way. What a place. I have to be honest, it's been a bit soured for me by the spewing incident that was picked up there. But, um, the place itself is fantastic. The shopping and all the independent stores and just the vibe, I just like it a lot. I think you'd have a great weekend there. There's a good comedy club there and stuff. I think it's pretty great, um... And I like it a lot. I really made Joshua laugh on the train because he said to me that he'd heard. Now, I'm sure that this is probably just some YouTube short that he watched, but he was certain that if you gave a medieval person a chilly heatwave Dorito, it would kill them. <laughs> He was of the opinion that a chili wave Dorito would kill a person because they wouldn't be able to handle the assault on the senses. They weren't used to it. And I said to him, well, medieval people still had food. They still had fruits and vegetables and peppers and all that sort of stuff. And he was like, but it would just have so much flavor. They wouldn't be able to handle it. And I said to him, I don't think you can die from too tasty. Like tastiness is... Cannot be the cause of death. He was like, but what if you had a, a really sour drink or something? And I'm like, who's they doing the autopsy, Doctor Pepper, Doctor? Dr. Oh no! And then he was like, no, no, it wasn't just um, this one. I made him laugh. He said, it's not just food. If they listen to rap music, they wouldn't be able to handle that either, and that would kill them. And I'm like, oh, so we've gone from Doctor Pepper to Doctor Dre. He was laughing his head off, and I said, just imagine you're in a situation, you go into war against some medieval peasants. I don't know why they're peasants, by the way, but that's what he said. I don't know why they have to be, you know, demonstratively so poor that they're described as peasants. Presumably the upper class people from the medieval times, they could have eaten Doritos, but peasants, they can't handle it. He said, uh, I said, oh, so Orlac the Destroyer, choose your weapon. Oh, I'll take the 12-inch broadsword, please. Okay, uh, grimly the beheader. What would you like? Oh, I'll take my favorite axe if I can. Uh, Joshua, the <laughs> the barbarian. What would you like to take in a battle? You got any pickled onion monster munch? <laughs> So his weapon would be some very very strongly flavoured crisps apparently but we had a really good laugh on the train about that on the way into London on the first day and uh, it was quite cute. We did have a nice time hanging out together it was very good. I told him as soon as we got off the train I said look you and I are gonna have a fantastic time if you don't get on my nerves and I will be perfectly nice to you. Let's just, you know, because now that he's getting a bit older, it's a bit like my relationship with my dad. You know, you fall out a little bit occasionally over both having fairly strong will and he wants to sort of assert his independence and it's not always easy as a dad to let go of that. So we're never getting our way with it together, but I always say to him, you know what, as long as we always come back together with understanding and love, we'll never fall out too badly. The teenage years are ahead and sometimes they're going to be tough. There's going to be things that you will think and want that will jar against stuff that I think and want for you. And that's going to be, that's going to be difficult. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll manage it. And um, I read in the news last night, God knows if I'm going to get to talk about the end of the ship. I read in the news last night that uh, the head of the British Army said that if we go to war with Russia, which is looking increasingly likely in the next 20 years, then the UK will have to look at potential conscription for civilians to become soldiers because the army isn't big enough. Apparently there are 70,000 serving soldiers. That's what I uh, heard in the article. Let's have a look. How many current British serving soldiers are there? Uh, Gosh, it says... 75,000 regular full-time personnel, 4,097 Gurkhas, which is like having 30,000 of anything else, 26,000 volunteer reserve personnel, and 4,000 other reserves. Basically, the British Army totals just over 100,000 people, 110,000 people, which is quite a surprise, really, including volunteers. Without volunteers, it's 85,000. That's mad, isn't it? That's really mad. When apparently they say that Russia has got a million and China have got two million. So that's really something. But then you wonder with nuclear capability and, you know, computers and all the different tech, how likely is it that two nations that are not connected by land would have anything approaching a ground war? And where would that ground war happen? Could Russian soldiers even make it to to this land and then if they're not making it to this land and we're going over there and fighting I can't see anything more than other than a revolt against the idea of people getting conscribed I mean yeah sure in the 19 I mean um, 1914 in the first world war there was conscription and then 1939 in the second world war there was conscription in in Britain and other countries, of course, had it. Uh, you know, the America had a draft and loads of other countries have had that. And some countries, like Finland, they still have uh, mandatory military service straight out of school and stuff. Like other countries, they do do it. But in this day and age, in this kind of, you know, Gen Z, I don't know if I can see that happening. Can you imagine? I mean, I I don't want to throw serious issues to the wall but at the minute the biggest problem that society or the biggest question it's not even a problem the biggest debate or question that society is facing right now with gen z and youth and you know that's of course expanding to all uh, ages and you know parts of society is sort of identity politics and people identifying by various gender sexuality sort of People are fighting for their personal right to discuss the boundaries of biology, I suppose, and what that means on a personal level and what you can and can't be. I just cannot see a world where that is the current biggest issue and debating topic also being one where people... And what what would he get, you know, conscripted into the army? And what would the punishment be for not going in the army? Once upon a time, people were shamed or threatened with jail. But I can't see that working either. I mean, jails are full for a start. It's just, it's madness. It's really madness. If there's any chance of it being a reality, they really need to rethink it. Because I cannot see Brits, especially not a generation from now, doing anything close to being conscripted in the army. I'm surprised they get anybody in there is, to begin with. If Joshua wanted to go in the army, I mean, firstly, if Joshua was going to get conscripted in at the army, I'd probably break his legs for him before I'd let them take him. I assume I'm too old for it at 38. And, you know, in 10 years from now, when they're talking, I'll be 48. So I think my time of potential army conscription is past. But I'd break my own legs before I'd go in the army. I wouldn't fight for this country if it was the last thing I had to do on Earth, you, I wouldn't even trust this government to run a bath, let alone run a war. Or, I don't trust them to run the country. We are in a shocking state politically, and honestly, I don't know what would be worth fighting for. Because, what is the war with Russia even about? What was the war with Iraq even about? What was the war in Vietnam, as we talked about last week, even about? You know, years and years after the fact, and even now in the midst of an awful war between Gaza and Palestine and Syria and Russia and Ukraine and all of these places that are currently at war, the thing that they're actually at war about is still being debated. And it's unsurprising that it's being debated when people are still debating why we actually went to war with Iraq or why American soldiers went to Vietnam The reasons for the wars, I don't know if you could get people to willingly go and fight if they didn't even know what they were fighting for. Would I fight to protect my family? Would I fight to protect innocent people who lived in this country from an existential threat? Yes. Yes, I would do that. That would be the one instance where you would get me to sign up and say, okay, fine. If it means saving the lives of other people who are innocent, then I suppose that's when you step up. But if it means going in a plane with a gun strapped to you that you're supposed to shoot other people with in another country, I I don't know that I could get behind that. Because as soon as you've got on a plane and gone to another place to do your fighting you've already lost your self-defence clause, I think. You know, we even understand this when we have a fight in a bar. If, you, if someone walks up to you and gives you a bit of shit and you punch them, if you didn't really believe they were going to punch you, you can't claim self-defence. And I don't know if flying to another country and killing regular people or, you know, their soldiers in that country, I don't know if you can claim that self-defence either. Surely there's got to be other ways to talk it out around the table. If they're not here in this country, on this land, dropping bombs on houses and people in Britain, then I don't know what the excuse is to go over there and do that to them. We should still be at the table. We should still be talking it out. We should still be negotiating. Um, I really just... I think it's crazy the idea that we could end up in an actual war and that people could be forced to go and fight in it in 2024, 2034, 2044. It's honestly, it's just unthinkable. And yet people are having serious conversations about it on the news yesterday, on the news today, like it's a real thing that might happen. And one of the strange things about real things that might happen is that Sometimes they do happen. I've seen it happen with COVID and lockdown and stuff, you know, in the last few years of my own life. We all have. It sounded unthinkable. If in 2019, if in August of 2019, someone had said to you, there's going to be a pandemic that goes around the world. If you watched a TV, I mean, there was a TV show where it happened that goes around the world and forces all of us to stop working and stay in our houses for months at a time and... Tens or hundreds of thousands of people will die in your country. Millions, perhaps. I just don't know that you would have ever been able to believe that. And then fast forward a few months and we're watching the news and Boris Johnson says in a, um, what's it called, in a a news bulletin thing, you know, a a direct address to the nation, five o'clock on every channel, I remember him saying, this is the figures. This is what happened. This is what we've learned. So as from today, you must stay at home. You must not leave your house. You must... And just being like, oh my God. I, I really remember those moments of sort of, I remember them saying, this might happen. And, oh, today's announcement, he's going to announce a lockdown and thinking, nah, that won't happen. And then hearing him say the words and sort of just thinking, what does this mean? Are we really going to be kept in the house? Like you're allowed to go out, but you've got to be by yourself and you must keep distance and you've got to have a reason. You must be shopping or doing something serious. And if you get caught just walking about, you might get in trouble and you'll get arrested if you have a party and all this stuff. It just seemed like impossible, really, that it could be reality. And yet it went on to happen and it is a reality and we did do it. And so... When I hear them talking on the news about a potential war with Russia, and, you know, while Putin is still alive, you sort of feel like anything's on the table. I mean, Putin, there's constant reports that he's unwell. There's nothing more dangerous than a dying animal, is there? That's what they say. You know, he's got nothing left to lose. Maybe he decides to leave his mark, and he goes out and says some crazy stuff, and that's kind of it before you know it, we're at war. I just don't know. But I cannot see a world in which conscription happens, and certainly if it did happen... There's not a chance in this world would I let Joshua go and fight in a war against a country that are basically insane. You know, I wouldn't let him go and fight against Russia unless we were being attacked and he was fighting inside of this country. As soon as you get on a plane, I just think that's when it's game over. Feel free to message me and tell me where and how I'm wrong because I'd be interested to learn this, but it does seem to me And obviously I'm spitballing and I'm speaking off the top of my head, as always. But it does feel to me a pretty clear line that if you get on a plane to go and kill someone somewhere else, you can't necessarily claim to be defending your own land. You know, I think if I boil it down to local terms, if my neighbour is a dickhead and he keeps making all these threats... Until he's standing in my garden, I think I just have to kind of keep talking to him or trying to find alternate ways out of it. As soon as I'm standing in his garden, I think I've I've started the war, the actual war part. And of course, wars are going on now in all sorts of different places. There are spies and uh, different espionage operations happening under our noses in this country all the time different intelligence operations are stopping bombings and terror attacks and all sorts of things all the time and you never get to know about them sometimes you hear about them 10 20 30 years later when some retired operative releases a book and talks about things that may or may not have happened i mean one of them is um Tom What's-His-Name, Soldier Spy. Great, uh, great book that, by the way, Soldier Spy. I highly recommend it. And his follow-up as well to it about him being in MI5. But, um, you know, you only get to hear about those things in roundabout ways years later. You don't really know what is and isn't happening. And then, of course, you know, there's computer espionage and computer wars and data wars and... All sorts of things going on all the time that you never know about. The idea of an actual ground war, I don't know, seems crazy to me. But let's move on, I can't talk about that all day. It just seems quite impossible really. Although I was thinking about lockdown in terms of um, this kind of thing. And with all that's happening, you know, between food poisoning and the way the world is now and... The last sort of year of our lives that it were quite stressful for various reasons and sort of but also great for loads of reasons as well, I think most people now that the kind of i mean there are two types of people aren't there in the world right now There are people who were deeply and there's no there's really no running away from this. The pandemic really split the world into two camps. Two types of people. People who lost somebody and people who didn't. Everybody somebody, everybody had someone die that they knew, I think. I don't think I know anybody who didn't know someone who died as a result of the pandemic, as a result of COVID. I certainly know people who died. I had friends, you know, but... I didn't have anybody in my life that was really close, like an immediate speak to them every week or really have them in my life on a day-to-day basis person or relative who died as a result of COVID. And I suppose that splits us into two different types of people. People who, who had someone close to them die and people who didn't have someone close to them die. And I think those two different people had very, very different... Outlooks on the overall thing of the pandemic. Because for the people who had someone close to them die, it is and will remain a horrible thing in their entire lives. It will always be the reason that somebody who should still be there is no longer there. It might be the reason that they now have a different partner or live in a different house or are by themselves or, you know, awfully have a child's uh, grave to visit every week or, you know, all sorts of awful, awful consequences of that. But for people for who that didn't happen, COVID was horrible, but the lockdown itself was in a lot of cases, quite a nice period of time. And so it's such a, it's taken me all this time of, you know, years to really get my head around this thought. And I don't know that I've said this already, but it's really difficult to kind of split the duality of awful tragedy and some quite good memories. When I think back, for us, Covid was a weird turning point because it forced us to be in the house together a lot. It meant Joshua stopped going to primary school for quite a bit and he was not having a great time at primary school up until then but under the he was quite a naughty child he misbehaved a lot and he was very difficult in class and then he went back to primary school afterwards almost an entirely different kid because in that time that he was off he grew a lot you know socially and psychologically and physically and went back to school and was able to get a fresh start. But also he did a bunch of reading, he gained new interests. It really changed who he was as a person, altered his kind of um, intelligence-based confidence. It taught him that he did know things and had things to say that were of value. And so he went back to school, quite a different child. But also for me, It was a hugely bonding experience between certainly me and Joshua, if not me and Sarah as well. But, you know, I'd never spent that amount of time in the house with Joshua because of working all the time. And now suddenly... We're all at home in the house at the same time and we picked up loads of new hobbies. Sarah did loads of new stuff and picked up loads of hobbies. She started knitting, she started selling Rocky Road online, she started just doing loads of new things that she really enjoyed. I picked up a whole group of friends that I played Call of Duty with online and I'm still friends with them now and I still talk in that group on Messenger every day, it's like my go-to place. When I want to say something, but not necessarily to one specific person, I just want to talk about a thing, get into a chat about a random thing that I've seen or I'm thinking about, I post it into that group and generally two of two out of the four other people will reply almost instantly and it will become a conversation. And I didn't have that group until... Um, until recently. And so that came as a result of COVID, but also lots of new creative stuff and nice things came out of it for me. And also it was kind of a, just a break from the monotony of the work and the constant cycle of going round and round and round doing the same old things. And it kind of gave me a bit of a new direction. And I wonder if there's a horrible split in that There are people who will look back at COVID as being the worst thing that ever happened in their lives. And I, now that I'm able to gain some distance from the fear that it created, because we we don't usually remember pain very well or being scared very well. They're not feelings that lock into our heart. We fear being scared or fear pain forever, but we don't necessarily remember it as well as we remember good things, I think. And so... Now that the kind of financial fear and all of the other things that surrounded COVID and the lockdown have gone, I look back on being locked in the house with my family as a largely positive experience for me personally, And I I bet, in fact, I don't even need to bet, I know because I've had this conversation with a few people recently, there are a lot of people who look back on lockdown as being one of the best things that happened to them in their lives. And then there are a load of people who look back on lockdown as being the side effect of the worst thing that ever happened to them. It's such a wild thing to have lived through. And I... I was thinking to myself, the pandemic and the lockdown was kind of my generation's or this generation's World War One or World War Two, And now we might all be facing that both of them. I just, I just can't get my head around. I'm still coming to terms with it. How do you all feel about it? Drop me a message about it. How do you feel that lockdown affected your life ultimately? Because it's hard to look back on the things that came out of it to me and not say that, a lot of it was good obviously loads of it was horrible and i lost friends and so much of it was grim and scary and i was i cried when i heard that it was going to happen and i cried when all of my gigs were getting cancelled and i was afraid about what ha- what would happen to my family and how i would support us and what it would go on to mean in the longer term you know a bunch of different things because of that feeling but once we started getting the uh, payments to help us pay bills and keep up with stuff. And Sarah was still kind of working from home, dealing with emails and stuff and occasionally going into the store with just one other employee or various different, you know, uh, concessions were made to allow her to still be able to occasionally do stuff. But that aside, I think she was basically on a full wage. Once we kind of worked out those things and the financial fear of it went away, and we all had COVID two or three times, we had it on Christmas Day as well, Um, a lot of it was really enjoyable. Waking up without the pressure of the day and just getting on with your hobbies and stuff, it was like, some of it was really good. And I wonder how many other people feel like that. Of course, you can't let a conversation like this go by without saying that, it brings into such stark contrast the horror of how many people, um, you know, lost their lives and how many people have been so deeply affected by the horrible parts of it. But I wonder, will I look back on it as being one of the happiest times of my life? Happiest in a singular sense of that. The pressure to achieve something was removed So then I suppose going forward, you have to think to yourself, what lessons can I now learn from this? If I'm trying to deal with and work on my own happiness going forward, how do I work on being happier in future? And what lessons can I learn from a time that I was happy? And maybe removing the pressure to achieve or just focusing on singular good things like eating well, going to bed on time, exercising, maybe trying to just simplify down my wants and then simplifying the things I have to do to achieve those wants will ultimately lead to greater happiness. Maybe there's something in this, you know. Anyway, it's just after half five, so I need to go and pick Sarah up. Uh, I'm going to come back and do the rest of this chat. And actually, I'm just going to talk to you about the session, which is the convention I went to. And I'm going to save the rest of the ship until next week if I've got nothing to talk about. Because I've done over 45 minutes here. I've done 50 minutes and I've not even got onto the ship. So, you know, that's how it goes, isn't it? At least I've got something else to record next week. I think I'll be on seven weeks in a row without missing one. Anyway, I'll be back in a sec. Well, for you, it'll be no seconds. Anyway, I'm going. Hey, friends, I'm back. I just went to pick up Sarah James, the beautiful Sarah James from out in the cold. And uh, she is definitely not in the room with me now. She does not want to speak. And so she is not in the room with me right now, staring at me as I look across the room, eating toast and hugging the dog. Why don't you just say hello to the friends? (laughs) I'm not in the room. (laughs) Hey, the friends. Hey, the friends. Oh, I was talking about our week out, our weekend in London, how hard you worked and how proud I am of you. Crushed it, didn't you? This is a conversation now. Can you just tell the friends how ill I was with the food poisoning? Oh my God, he was so ill. Be serious though. You were very ill. How many times did I spew? A lot. How many's a lot? I don't know. Five. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, be real. A lot. Like... F- Like 50 or 60. Yes, you did. You were very young. It was really bad. Anyway, I'm not going to make Sarah talk, otherwise I'll never get through the things that I've got to say to you. I'm already rolling over um, Singapore until next week. Which, if nothing else, guarantees you another episode. I'm going to talk to you about the Session Magic Convention now, because I've finished talking about all the other stuff. Had a great time at the Session. Obviously, I ended up doing that convention in quite strange circumstances, which we've already talked about already. But my friend basically challenged me to get a certain amount of likes, which was easy. So I ended up getting booked. Went down there on uh, Friday I'll be honest, on Friday morning when I woke up, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily enthusiastic about going. I, I was genuinely thinking to myself, why did I talk myself into doing this convention? I really would just rather stay at home all weekend. And then as soon as I got there, I started having a brilliant time straight away. And I was so glad that I was there because the second I arrived, I saw my friend Ruben Villagrand from Spain and I saw Morten Christiansen from... Um, Denmark both of whom have won prizes at FISM which is the World Championships of Magic. Ruben won in the uh, Creative Inventor Award and Morten won it in the Comedy Magic Award and if there's anyone I want to spend time with more than creative comedy magicians who've won World Prize Awards for it I mean fantastic. So the three of us kind of became a solid Trio for the whole weekend instantly and Reuben and Morton knew each other a little bit, but not that well And I helped them to get to know each other better, which obviously was great for me and um It was just a brilliant, brilliant time. My intention on Friday night was to get there late because I had loads of jobs to do. And my friend Ryan Plunkett, who's from Chicago, I wanted to get him a t-shirt from the local record store. And so I literally only left the house at quarter past five because I was gonna miss the record store if I didn't go then. And honestly, if not for that, I probably would have left even later. I was really putting it off. So I'd spent all day tidying the house, doing jobs, getting bits of things done. And eventually I finally left the house and got down there and thought I'm going to go. I'm going to check in, say hi to everyone, basically go to my room, chill out, sort my talk out and be ready for the next day. Well, I think I might have been one of the very last people to go to bed. I was still awake at 4 a.m., Went to, went to bed at 3.30 when, I, when my little group of people went to bed. And I was still awake at 4.00. And I remember getting into bed thinking, what the hell have I done this for? This was not my plan at all. And I was still awake at 4.30. And then I woke up the next morning at 9.00 just feeling like I hadn't had enough sleep. Maybe a bit earlier, actually, because I remember texting Sarah in the morning. But... Um, It wasn't what I'd planned at all, but I knew I was in a convention now and I was having a great time. Went and watched some of the lectures and stuff. I was doing my talk that day and hosting some of the lectures. Uh, The other lectures I hosted were all great, nice people. My talk went over really, really well. I was super pleased with the feedback and uh, had a fantastic time. Took a great photograph of the convention, which I posted on social media. I think Vanishing Inc. are going to use it in some of their social media in future. And, um... Once that was done, all of my performing duties were basically over, but I still had that night and another whole day to go of just hanging out with friends, and I really did. I just had such a nice time. I saw Luke Germay do a performance, which really blew my mind. It was just so theatrical, storytelling, close up magic, nicely paced. I thought that he was so great. Uh, I became really nice friends with a guy called Michael Feldman, who is a magician out of uh, San Diego. He's best friends with Ryan Plunkett, so that's how I ended up hanging out with him. I met him at my Fest over a year ago, and... I wouldn't say that we didn't connect, but we didn't really get a chance to. I spoke to him for about 20 minutes and I thought he was a nice guy. And then I never really spoke to him again. And this weekend, I spent a bunch of time with him and talked to him a lot. And we made really good friends and I was really glad. So that was definitely a nice thing. And um, I really like his magic and I liked his lecture. Ryan's lecture was great. It was just the performing parts of it were all good. But what I did realize is that I cannot pay to go to conventions because not because I'm too good to pay or anything like that, but because I, I won't have a good time and also not because I only can enjoy it if it's free. I've really sat on this thought for a while and it kind of chimed with me over the weekend when I did go back to my room for a few hours. There was a point during Saturday when I'd done my talk and as you expect at conventions and actually the session, hanging out with attendees is kind of part of the booking. I remember when I booked it last year, the email very specifically said, we've booked you to do your talk and performance, but we also very much encourage that you spend time in the bar and in the lounging areas and make yourself available for people to come up and talk to you because the whole point of this convention is that there are no barriers and that anybody at any level can go up and talk to anybody at any level, you know, in experience or performing ability or whatever and gain knowledge from their experience and have conversations and you're encouraged to not be sort of what would at school have been considered you know, popular but was actually elitist and hang out in your clicks. They try to make it not clicky and they don't want you to just hang out with your five friends that have, you know, performed at conventions together around the world. They want you to talk to people that have been doing magic for three months or kids that are enthusiastic or adults that are amateurs or hobbyists or whatever. And that's kind of part of it. And it's really the best part of it. And it it really brought me a lot of joy over the weekend. But I also realised that you don't have an unlimited amount of enthusiasm or energy for anything, and certainly not that. And so... I would go in the bar and I would sit and for an hour people would come up and talk to you and and everybody wants 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So before you know it, an hour's gone by and you've had three or four pretty intense conversations, sometimes where people really get what you have tried to say in your talk and they want to expand on it. Sometimes with people who've entirely misunderstood it and sometimes with people who just want to explain to you what they're doing in their act and ask you if you think it sounds any good or not. And invariably, it doesn't sound that good, <laughs> but you know, that's fine. Everyone's been shit at some point. So it's kind of a funny vibe and you you spend a lot of time doing that and it's nice. But then you think I'm a bit out of energy here. And my way that I recognize that is when somebody comes up to me and says, hey man, how's it going? And I say, ah, you know how it is, just hanging out, doing the thing, conventioning it. You know, it's... <sighs> Long, isn't it? Sometimes, and just you, as soon as you slip into that mode of answering the question, you already should have left because ultimately, what people want, especially if they know your work or they're in any way, and I hate to use the word fan, but if they're an admirer of work you've released or they've any hope that they like something that you've seen and they've used it themselves and you've become some sort of pillar for them of what they want their magic to be, then all they want is a positive experience of meeting you. And when they come over to you and you do what I just explained, that's bad experience. But when they come over to you and they say, "'Hey, how's it going?' and you go, Great, thanks. How are you? Have you seen any good magic this weekend? What are you working on? Sit down. Is that a deck of cards? Why don't you show me your favourite trick? Let me show you a move that would really work in that trick. That's what they want out of you when they sit down. They don't necessarily know that that's what they want, but when they leave and they got that, they're very happy. But if you give them that, oh, you know, great, how are you? Just a bit, you know, tired or bored or you should have already left. And so I recognise that my own energy drops quite a bit after a couple of hours of that. And what I'll tend to do is go back to the room and I'll just sit and play on my phone or get in the bath or watch some TV or call Sarah or text some friends or whatever for an hour or two and then get showered, go back out fresh-faced, jump right into it again and give everybody 100% of yourself. And when you are being paid to be at a convention or you've been booked, you can go back to your room for two or three hours, completely guilt-free, personally guilt-free, because you think, I didn't pay to be here. I'm not missing out on the experience, but there's a really difficult internal thing that happens. If you've paid several hundred pounds to be in a place, especially if you're paid to fly there or get trains there or drove a long way, If you're at the convention and you're spending three and four hours sitting in your room, it really makes you feel down because you think, why have I paid all this money to come and sit by myself in a hotel room when I could be at home with my family? And I end up having a shit time. Every time I pay to go to a convention, I don't have a good time because every few hours I want to go and be by myself for a few hours and then I'm annoyed that I'm sitting in my room. But if I'm booked, I don't feel guilty about it at all. And I can really have high impact, good time out of my room and then go back there without any guilt. So what that has led me to the decision of is that I absolutely cannot ever again in future pay to attend a magic convention, because I won't enjoy it. And I actually haven't paid to attend a magic convention in about eight years. I didn't remember the last time I did pay to go on, to go to one, because even Blackpool, which is down the road, I never go to the convention. I always just go to the bar afterwards and hang out with my friends that I know are at, at the convention. I did see a show at the convention a few years ago, but that was because one of the organizers gave me a free ticket and let me in. And then I did see a late night performance at a show the year before last. And that was because one of my friends who didn't want to see it just lent me their badge and I walked in with it. But I I certainly haven't paid for a ticket at a convention. I honestly can't even remember when. It would have been Blackpool, but it would have been at least... God, I mean, I lectured at it in 2016 and I paid to go to it the year before, maybe. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I haven't paid to go to a convention in over 10 years, but I've finally worked out why I can never do it again. (laughs) Maybe if it was like FISM and it was in Europe and Sarah was coming, because then it would mean that like we were going to Italy and I was going to a convention and she could just be by herself in, you know, Lake Garda. There was one that was in, it wasn't Lake Garda, it was somewhere like that. If it meant that we could be together in the hotel at night, but then you know, and she could come to the odd event, but essentially she got a a hot holiday in Italy and I was attending a convention. I would pay then, or if it was something really special, or if it was in Vegas or something, but ultimately I can't see myself paying to go to a convention ever again, and I've really worked out why. And I had that conversation with Morton and Ruben and Ryan, and they all kind of felt fairly similar. Not Ryan, Ryan loves conventions. He's got a lot of enthusiasm, but Morton and Ruben... um, I think felt fairly similar, more Reuben. Morton's got a lot of enthusiasm for it as well, but um, I'm drained. (laughs) I'm just a miserable old fuck and I don't want to go to things anymore. What can I say? Some good things happened, though. I bumped into Dynamo, now calling himself Stephen Frane, uh, for legal reasons. Dynamo is dead. I got his picture and put it in my Polaroid book, which is still going. And uh, he signed a nice little thing inside of there, which was cool. Um, I bought the Jay Sankey books because... As a Vanishing Ink employee, you get Vanishing Ink discount, which is very helpful. And they were on, like, an opening weekend special because they've been reissued. And I've wanted them. They came out for the first time 10 years ago, but they were, like, £120. And 10 years ago, I just did not have that money to spend on three books. And also, my... Uh, Will to collect books for all it was quite big. It wasn't quite like it is now. I didn't necessarily have the same financial, you know, ability to buy things or the will, and so I didn't buy them. And I've regretted it ever since. Ten years of regretting not buying these books because every time they come up for sale secondhand, they go in for like seven hundred pounds and crazy money. That market obviously now has been obliterated by the fact that they've been reissued. But one of the nice things about being really good friends with the owner of the company who published them, is that I've been in his ear roughly once a week for about five years, just saying, when are you going to republish these things? And finally, the demand from other people got so high that they acquiesced, gave in, and uh, they've done it. So I've got the Jay Sankey books. It's an absolute monster three set of tricks. There's like 1,200 pages or something, spread across the three. I've been reading them in little bits across the last uh, week and a half and just getting loads of little ideas out of them. They're just fantastic books. Even though they're close at magic, predominantly, they have such nice ideas and plots and things in them. Um, Ryan Plunkett gave me his new trick, which is called Blow Hard. It's not released yet, but it's really cool. And I've been playing with that a bit and had some funny ideas with it. Ryan and I came up with a great trick for him, for his act that uses polaroid photos which he started taking a lot of recently inspired by me using the polaroid but now he's turned it into a trick and i've helped him with a method which is pretty cool so all in all uh, a lot of nice things came out of the session a couple of people asked me about booking other conventions which i'm hoping will happen and um, i'm still waiting to confirm a potentially amazing contract i thought for a bit it was going to happen today And I was going to be able to tell you about it today and a tiny bit of it pushed forward today, but it still hasn't happened. So I'm not going to talk about it until it happens. But what I will tell you about is a project that I'm working on myself, which is why I've been redoing the office quite a bit. Um, And I'm going to finish telling you this and then I'm going to have to go. But the thing is essentially an eight week stage magic course via Zoom for participants who want to subscribe and if you want to see you've got to subscribe to the whole thing all eight weeks and you pay up front for the whole thing Uh, i need some tips on pricing so if you've got any ideas i'm not going to tell you what other people have suggested other people have generally said more than i initially thought so that's good but um, drop me a message and tell me what you think you would expect to pay for this thing and by the way this will be really 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 helpful to me especially if you're a magician who listens to this or you know anything about the magic world, a a proper price that you think would be reasonable to charge for this thing, send me a message, please, because it will dramatically influence my decision-making around it. So from my office studio which is now extra set up with multiple camera angles and microphones obviously i wear a head mic all the time i've got music that i can inject i've got high quality video performances and stuff that are going to be part of it Uh, loads and loads of different things i am essentially going to do an eight week course it's going to be every sunday night in the UK at eight pm, which means that if you're in LA, it will be twelve in the afternoon on a Sunday. If you are in New York, it'll be, uh, what will it be in New York? It'll be three pm, four pm. What's New York? Is New York five hours behind? Is that right? So be, will it be three pm? I can't remember. Anyway, basically, if you're anywhere between LA and here, it will be either midday or 8pm at night, on a Sunday, and if you're anywhere forward of us in the timeline, it will be somewhere, you know, between 8pm and midnight, uh, presumably, and if you're in Australia, it'll be in the morning on Monday, so you're kind of fucked, I'm sorry about that, but it's got to be at some point. Um, But, every single week, the footage from that week will be available immediately online in perpetuity, so you'll always be able to go back and watch it. Every week for eight weeks is going to be an hour and a half long, roughly, sometimes slightly longer, maybe sometimes slightly shorter, I don't know. Knowing me, it'll almost entirely always be longer. But Week one will be like an introduction to the course, uh, laying out what we're gonna learn, talking about the fundamental basics of stage magic, and then talking about openers, and then talking about openers that I've used. So learning my vanishing elephant bit, learning my chop cup in full, the most in-depth I've ever taught it before, Every single stone overturned, every single thought, feeling, vibe, every angle covered. The most in-depth teaching of that trick you could possibly imagine, plus other opening effects, why you should do them, how to open your show, um, even what to say to the audience rather than ladies and gentlemen, hello ladies and gentlemen, even something else to say then, various different things covered. But week one, all about openers. Uh, Week two, all about Beginning the middle section of the show, and I typically do a trick where I pretend I'm going to teach the audience a trick. So, in that week, I'll teach two tricks the half dyed silk and the silk to egg, but also talk about other effects in that vein and talk about the structuring of the show. Week three will be about how to use playing cards or do a card trick on stage and how to make a card trick work on stage and covering the work of. Professor Hoffman in, you know, inventing the multiple selection to use on stage in theatres and touching on the work of people like Roberto Giobi, who of course wrote a book about card magic on stage and some of his theories and how my theories interact with his and where I agree and disagree. And also teaching a multiple selection plus a, um, what's it called, plus a the eight cards to pocket routine in great detail for both of them. And then how in, to incorporate an on-stage deck switch and potentially using memorized deck and things like that as a kind of kicker for the after trick in the way that I've done in the past for multiple selection. So uh, basically using playing cards on stage. Uh, week four will be about stagecraft, how to put the actual show together technically, so the various types of remote control you can use to control the show, which ones control just music, which ones control QLab, how to set QLab up, how to set up your playlists, what kind of music to use in your show, what the stage screens can potentially look like, what the expectation is going to be like in various different venues, and what you're going to have available to you when you perform in different kinds of venues. Week five, we will talk about closing effects, how to bring down the show, how to uh, get more uh, interaction on social media and I'll obviously teach in every single week of course I will teach tricks. Uh, week six and 7 we'll have stuff in, week eight will be a wrap-up Q&A and a tidy obsession on anything that's been missed or questions from previous weeks and basically it's going to be a tell-all full eight-week course 1.5 hours per week so of course it's going to be somewhere in the region of 12 hours total when it's done and uh different routines and tricks every week but also stagecraft technical stuff and all of it will be available forever online via a secret uh, set of links after the course is done so that's basically that's basically it and the question is how much do i charge to get onto the course how much do i charge people to take part in this eight-week interactive set of sessions. Um, And what else would you like to know? You know, what kind of things would you like to hear about in a course like that? So that's where I'm at. That's my thoughts. Uh, Send me a message, what you think that's worth. It'll really help me out because I am going to launch it soon. I'm going to start doing some publicity for it soon. Uh, Right now, I've got to go because Sarah and I are going to a painting class, so I need to get a shower. But uh, much love to you all, friends. I'll catch you next week. That's this week's podcast. Oof, an hour and ten minutes. Well, an hour and fifteen minutes more like. Uh bye friends. See you soon.